And so, uh, we had started working our way in from the outside. Uh, so the flagellum, long process, as long as usually as the cell itself, uh, has this obvious hook arrangement that you do not find in eukaryotic cells. It's a, a very clear indication that you're dealing with prokaryotic cells. Um, it doesn't matter if they're gram positive or gram negative, either one of them can have flagellum. That does not change anything. Uh, and uh, so basically, it rotates. That hook allows it to rotate, and it acts more like a propeller than it does the typical waving thing that you see when you usually people see sperm cells or, or, or some other of the uh, protestants, which are all eukaryotic. Um, now, the rotation is can be changed. It's reversible. It can rotate one way. It can rotate the other way. So why would you want to do that? Well, this is how the bacterium manages to move either toward something that it likes, chemically usually, or light sometimes, or away from something that it doesn't want to be near. Now, it's not like they're conscious, okay? Uh, no, no brain, no nervous system, nothing like that. They do have chemical detectors, so, you know, otherwise they would have a problem. Uh, but what they do is something called a, a run and tumble method of movement. All right, so here's, here's how this works. Um, in this case, attracted, there's an attractant here. And so when, they, when the organism gets ready to move, it tumbles. And tumble means it reverses the direction of the flagella, and they just bounce around, and then they stop, and they're pointed in some random direction. They have no idea where. And then they, they'll reverse, the, they'll move the flagella back to the normal rotation, and that will move them through the fluid. If they're getting uh, closer to their attractant, then the run is longer. They will continue to run for a while, but then they'll stop and they'll tumble again. End up pointing in some random direction, okay? Uh, and then they will, again, reverse, they'll run. If this is taking them away from where they want to go, they will have a short run and then they'll tumble again. And they keep doing that. Long runs if they're headed where they, toward the chemical they're wanting to get toward or, or away from, as the case may be. Uh, if they're going in the right direction, short runs if they're going in the wrong direction with random tumbles in between. So there's no consciousness here. It's not like they're, they're stopping and saying, ah, it's over there, I'm headed that way. They have no idea where it is, exactly. They just go through this process, but eventually, since the runs are longer when they're, in this case, getting closer to the attractant, then eventually they get closer and closer. Uh, and, and it works the same way if it's something they're trying to avoid. Only in this case, obviously, they're moving away from something. Uh, so this run and tumble method of movement is, is common in, in bacteria that have flagella. Okay. Um, it's pretty un, un, it, it's not like anything that's done by other organisms. So it's only bacteria move this way. Okay. Partly because their flagella are reversible. When they move one way, you can see that uh, when they're moving in one direction, that the flagella are all kind of together and helping to move them. When they're tumbling, the flagella are sticking out all over the place and, and they're not really moving, they're just changing direction. Okay, uh, works for them. Okay, Karen. Yeah. Well, they have chemical sensors. 
And so they can detect chemicals in, in their environment. Uh, and there are some chemicals that would be, might say, food. Maybe there's uh, uh, glucose, which they would use as an energy source, or some other carbohydrate. Uh, if you put a drop of bleach over there, they're going to get, they're going to go away from you because that's that, you know, they're they're able to detect that, but they, they don't want it in there. But it's not like they're taking in inf information, evaluating it, and making a conscious decision. Okay, there are a couple of other structures that stick out on bacteria. Uh, there are fibrae and pili. Now, fibrae are kind of short bristles, but they're sticky. And this is part of what they use to adhere to substrates. Uh, they may adhere to each other. They may adhere to something in their environment. Uh, these are much shorter than flagelli. And this is part of what keeps bacteria in biofilms that you know, they can stick. So for instance, the bacteria in your, teeth, in your mouth that are going to get on your teeth will have these. And this is partly how they stick to the tooth. And then they will secrete other substances around them, which will attract other bacteria. And eventually, you get a solid film of combination of living cells and non-living material. Okay? Uh, and so that's what, so fimbriae, short, sticky, for adherence. Okay, And this, we can see the, clearly the difference. This is a flagellum. These are the, the uh, this is a fimbria or Fibrie, if you wanted to make a plural for the whole bunch of them. For all you Latin scholars, that won't make sense to you. The rest of you, this is just accepted. Anybody take Latin anymore? Anybody here? Okay. So you, you, you understand that. Yeah. All right. Not a bad language, really. Uh, not a spoken language, but... Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's very useful when learning other European languages. Because the roots are all, basically, much of many of them are Latin. Now, English not, has fewer things with roots in the Latin. The French, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, all very much related to uh, Latin. Yeah, when I was in uh, high school, we were only allowed to take a foreign language in our junior and senior year. When they had French and Spanish, that was it. Uh, so if you wanted to start earlier than that, you had to take Latin in uh, ninth grade. So we read uh, we, the second semester was kind of fun. I liked it. Or the second year, we read Caesar's commentaries on his invasion of Gaul. That was interesting. That was, I'm sure it was simplified for us, but uh, it, was, it was actually Roman culture, Roman history, and it wasn't so bad. And if Julius Caesar ever shows up, we talk. Not too like I guess. Okay, so Fimbri. Okay, then we have Pili. Now this is a very specific type of Fimbria generally involved when the cells go through conjugation. We'll talk about that more when we get to bacterial genetics. Uh, so these are kind of in between size, between fimbriae and a flagellum. Bacteria generally don't have very many. And they're used to transfer DNA from one cell to another, from one bacterial cell to another. That's called conjugation. Okay, so here's kind of what it looks like. These two cells have formed this bridge between them, and one of them will pass DNA to the other. Generally, what's passed through this little uh, segment is a plasmid. Now, 
bacteria have one large chromosome, usually often circular. And then they may have one to several very small circular bits of DNA, and these are referred to as plasmids. Generally, what they pass across this is a plasmid from one to the other. But what this means is that any genes on that plasmid can be transferred to the neighboring cell. Uh, and unfortunately for us, many of the antibiotic resistance genes reside on plasmids. So if one bacterium is re resistant, it can pass that resistance to other nearby bacteria. And bacteria aren't overly picky about species, okay? Uh, it doesn't have to be the same species. Uh, although often it is, but it does not have to be. The, the, the species concept is pretty iffy when you get to bacteria. Okay. Uh, and so that's what they do. Now, they can, on occasion, pass their chromosome through there. The problem is these bridges are pretty fragile, and they rarely stay intact long enough to pass the whole chromosome through. Okay, but the little short plasmids usually can, can make it. So that's a, a pelus, which is a kind of in between the long flagellic and the short bristle-like membrane. It's kind of an in-between distance. All right, then here comes the fun part. Uh, well, it's not that fun, but a little more complicated. Cell walls. Most bacteria have a cell wall. Uh, it's uh, composed, it gives it shape, okay? So if they're a caucus or a bacillus or whatever, it, that shape is determined by their cell wall with the cytoplasm inside with a cell membrane around the cytoplasm. Uh, most common uh, substance in them is a substance called peptidoglycan. This is unique to bacteria. Not find this in eukaryotic cells. You do not find this in viruses. Generally, unique to, to uh, bacteria. Uh, now, they, as I said, they provide shape. They also protect the cell from the osmotic pressure. Now remember, a cytoplasm has a lot of dissolved substances in it, solutes. The environment they're living in probably has fewer. And so, what ends up happening is water tends to move through the membrane into the cell, and if you put, a, put them in uh, fresh water, for instance, that generates quite a bit of force. The cell wall helps protect them from bursting under those conditions. You put a, a red blood cell, for instance, in those conditions, it'll swell up with water until it just bursts open. Okay, these guys have some protection from that happening. The cell wall does that. Now, there are two basic types and we call them gram-positive and gram-negative because these, the staining technique, which we'll be doing in a couple weeks uh, in lab, uh, differentiates between the two types of cell walls. Uh, gram-positives end up being kind of a dark blue-purple color when you stain them, and gram-negatives end up being pink. And so uh, this is a, has long been a quick way to separate, if you have an unknown bacteria, you can kind of get rid of half of them just by doing a gram stain. Okay, and that certainly reduces what you have to deal with. Um, now, they have this difference in staining because the cell wall is constructed differently. 
Now, in lab, and when we do the gram stain, we have a little video which will go into great detail uh, about how the stain interacts with the cell wall. I'm not going to try and do that in here tonight, but we will be doing that in lab. But I do want you to see the structural differences in the cell wall. Okay. Now, this is peptidoglycan, and you don't need to know NAM and NAG and all that. These are just different molecules. Uh, what, what's important out of this is the linkages between them. It's, it's kind of like a little chain mail structure that surrounds the cell. Um, and in order for the cell to grow, it has to make more peptidoglycan to make their cell wall bigger. Obviously, you can't grow if you can't make the cell wall bigger. Okay? Um, and, uh, but don't worry about the specific names. That's not that important for us. So, gram positives. This is somewhat counterintuitive, I, I think, as you go through. But gram positives have a thick layer of peptidoglycan. So if you're at the cytoplasm, you'd have a cell membrane. Outside of that, you'd have a relatively thick layer of peptidoglycan. And with this <coughs> alcohol group in it, when you do a gram stain, they end up being purple or dark blue, probably more common. Um, there is a group uh, that has a different substance here called mycolic acid. They, are, they do not stain by gram stain very well. You have to use a different staining technique, and we'll get into that when we talk about identifying organisms. Uh, okay, so here's just a diagram. Here you can see, this is your typical cell membrane down here. Double layer of phospholipids, if you remember that from 101, okay? Uh, or even 141, we do talk about that some. Various proteins embedded in the cell membrane, just like any other organism, okay? Then outside of it, they have this thick peptidoglycan cell wall. This is their protection and what forms their shape. And that's pretty much it. These uh, tachyoic acids in here uh, and li li lipotachyoic acid, these are what connect the membrane out or the cell wall out of here to, into the cell membrane so that they, they stay together. And that's all there is to a gram positive bacterium or to the cell wall, just a thick peptidoglycan cell wall. Now, Gram negatives have a very thin layer of peptidoglycan, but outside of that, they have a, a whole extra outer membrane, which we're going to look at, that has some very specific substances in it. One in particular is that lipopolysaccharide, it's called LPS. Uh, this uh, is uh, detected by your immune system, and your immune system strongly reacts to the lipid A portion, and causes fever, dilation, inflammation, sometimes shock, sometimes blood clotting. And, and so a gram-negative bacteria can induce sometimes such a strong immune response that the immune response ends up making you sicker, okay, because of that. So they're uh, a problem, they're more of a problem, gram-negatives. Plus this outer membrane can restrict the movement of certain antibiotics through to get to so it's important to know when you're, if you're dealing with a serious infection that isn't, hasn't responded well to just general antibiotics, to know whether it's a gram-positive or gram-negative, okay, in, in terms of treatment. 
Now, when you stain these, they end up being pink when you're all done. Okay? Now, this is what it looks like. So down here is that cell membrane, just like grandpa's did, no difference. Here's a thin layer of peptidoglycan. And here and here we have what's called a paraplasmic space. And this is the outer membrane out here. Now, this outer membrane contains the LPS layer. It also has some uh, the um, phospholipids in it. And it is very resistant to movement of materials through it. So the cell has embedded in it these little channels. There's a particular protein here called a, that forms what's called a porin. And this is a, a way of bringing things through that outer cell wall. Things like food, uh, you know, kind of handy to do. Um, you do not find this outer membrane or the porins or the LPS in gram positives, only in gram negatives. And this affects its ability to hold the, the purple stain, which is what you do first. It's unable to hold on to the purple stain. And you end up rinsing it out and then counter stain with it. It will hold on to enough food to look at. Um, the cells we're going to look at tonight in lab, we're doing microscopy tonight. Um, I believe they're already made for us. We don't have to make them. Uh, I believe they're mostly gram positives because they're easier to see. There might be some gram positives in things, but I think they're mostly gram negative cells. It doesn't really matter for tonight. Uh, we just want you to get comfortable with the microscope. Uh, we're going to look at some yeast tonight. be singularly unimpressive. Um, yeast is not a very exciting cell. They're used a great deal in research, uh, and of course we, we eat lots of uh, bread. Unless you want all your bread to be like a cracker, you'd be glad there's yeast around. Um, yeah, so, you know, uh, there are cultures that had unleavened bread, and unleavened bread isn't much different than a cracker. Okay, leavened bread is in situ and yeast, and it rises in you can do that. You can obviously buy it in the store today. Uh, little packets that are freeze-dried. You add it in. Those things keep for a long time. When I was a kid, my mom used to buy, didn't come that way. You had to buy little cakes that were moist. They're wrapped in some foil. And once you opened it, you had to use it or it didn't keep for very long afterwards. So, uh, things have changed. Or you can do sourdough. Any, you know anybody who has sourdough at home? Basically, you're keeping a yeast culture at home, and uh, makes some really good, good bread, good cakes, good, wonderful uh, pancakes. Uh, we used to uh, well, my wife had she, she got custody of the sourdough, so, uh, which we had had since 19, get that? about 73, 74, and you just periodically open it, you feed it, put it back. You go to use it, you take it out, and you feed it, and you leave it out. And you have to make sure it's in a big container, because if you've got a container this big, and it's, you've got this much sourdough in there, overnight it will actually grow enough to come out the top. You know, it's kind of like the blob coming out on the But it's, you know, that's how people used to make bread. When they, there was no store, nowhere to go get yeast, you carried your own with you. Right? 
Uh, and you just keep growing it and using it and growing it and using it. Uh, each sourdough probably has a little different flavor depending on which strain of yeast you ended up with, or you may have a few bacteria growing in it as well. It's just one of those things. All right, so at any rate, uh, gram-positive, gram-negative cell walls. Okay. So gram-positive stain stains blue because that has a particular kind of cell wall. Gram-negatives end up being pink because they have a particular type of cell wall. Now, having said that most bacteria have cell walls, there are some that don't have any cell walls. Well. How do you survive the osmotic pressure with no cell wall? Well, what you do is you uh, generally go inside of another a eukaryotic cell, and you just live inside, and then you don't have to worry about that. Your eukaryotic cell you're living in takes care of those issues. Okay, and and so most of these are intracellular parasites. Uh, they're still bacteria, uh, but they just don't have any cell walls. They're very tiny. Uh, they have been implicated in some chronic diseases, although the, the, the jury's always out on that, uh, it seems like. Um, but they otherwise are just like excuse me, like prokaryotic cells. They just don't have a cell wall. And so living out in the environment is very tough for them. Uh, they, they tend to go inside of other cells as a way to protect them. Okay, cytoplasmic membrane is no different than any other cytoplasmic membrane. Double phospholipid layer, lipids. You have proteins that go all the way through. You have proteins stuck on the outside. You have some proteins hanging on the inside. Uh, if you remember the fluid mosaic model that we should have talked about of the cell membrane, this is a diagram. What, what I find fascinating by cell membranes is they're actually pretty tough, but there's really not a whole lot to link them together. The only reason they stay like this is that these phospholipids have the phospho part, the phosphate part that wants to be near water, and the lipid part that can't stand to be near water, and so they form a double layer, they tuck their tails in the middle, and that's it. That's how you form a cell membrane. There are no bonds in between them. No ionic bonds, no no bonding, there may probably be some hydrogen bonding, but not much. And that's all that holds your cell membranes together, is the fact those molecules want to have a certain orientation with respect to water. One end of it likes water, the other end doesn't. You can take these phospholipids, put them in water, they will spontaneously assemble into a cell membrane, into what is a cell membrane-like structure. They, they do that very, very well. Now, we do have proteins in here. Integral proteins are within the membrane or all the way through the membrane. You have peripheral proteins hanging on the inside. They also would be on the outside. You do have one substance in here that helps maintain the integrity of the cell membrane, and that is cholesterol. There will be cholesterol molecules in this phospholipid layer that provide some strength to it to help it hold it together. Cholesterol is not a bad thing. Well, it can be. But for the most part, cholesterol is a, a, an essential nutrient. If you don't get enough of it, your body won't make it. Okay. If you remember from, again, um, 
previous semesters, uh, cholesterol is the precursor for all for all of the uh, steroid hormones. It's the precursor uh, for uh, well, mostly for those. Uh, but cholesterol also has other functions. So the only problem comes when you have too much of the wrong kind of cholesterol. It tends to collect on the inside of our arteries, and that's never that's that's a bad that never when that happens. Uh, so you know there are people. How much cholesterol your body makes all on its own or has maintains on its own is partly genetic. Uh, you don't get a real choice. You may I don't know if any of you know anybody who's had a high cholesterol and they went on the real strict diet. They you were know, eating low, very low cholesterol stuff, and their cholesterol didn't go down. It just stayed high. Well, that's just the way they are. Uh, and so then the only thing you can do is you can you go on, on drugs. Uh, statins, there's very, you know, there's Zocor, uh, or Crestor, you know, there's a bunch, there's several of those out there. And what they do is they, they inhibit the formation of cholesterol to some degree. Uh, many cardiologists swear by them. Some cardi cardiologist that I've been to says everybody should be taking statins. He takes them, he doesn't have high blood pressure or, or extra cholesterol, but he takes them anyway. Because he thinks that they have long-term benefits. Who knows? Yeah. Every doctor in their specialty has particular outlooks about what you should be doing. And they don't all agree. This is kind of the So what is the function of the membrane? That's its structure. What is its function? Well, uh, in the case of uh, bacteria who don't have mitochondria, all of the enzymes for the aerobic respiration, if they are aerobic, are embedded in the cell membrane. The cell membrane will have foldings back and forth, and those, those things will be embedded in that membrane. Uh, if you're a photosynthetic bacteria, the enzymes are the structure, the molecules you need in order to do photosynthesis embedded in the cell membrane. That's part of why we think that mitochondria and, and uh, the uh, chloroplasts were originally free-living bacteria that ended up inside the came to dinner to be eaten, but they just stay and become an integral part of, of eukaryotic cells. And at this point, we can't live without our mitochondria, and they can't survive without us. So who's in charge? Well, yeah, who knows? Uh, who really knows? Okay, the membrane is selectively permeable. Remember that term? You should remember that term. All that means is it lets some things through relatively easily, and other things it won't let through. That doesn't mean you can't get those things through, but you're going to have to do work to make that happen. You're going to have to do an active transport of some kind. Uh, so they're impermeable to lots and lots of things. Uh, the proteins that you see as uh, like this, this is a, a channel protein, and this would be a place where materials could be brought into the cell through this channel. These proteins are specific to certain molecules. They only let certain molecules through. They don't let any others through. And so there would be many different kinds of them. Remember, nerve cells have sodium gates, calcium gates. Those are channels like this that one of them lets only sodium through, nothing else. The other one will let potassium through. So passive processes, I'm not going to go into too much detail here, you've, you've all had this before. 
the passive tra transport of materials across a membrane or even without a membrane, diffusion, facilitated diffusion and osmosis. Um, and so basically, when we're dealing with diffusion, what we're really looking at here is very small molecules that go from high to low concentration. And they could be going in or they could be going out it, it, either way, but they can go directly through the membrane, like oxygen which is a good deal for us. Oxygen will go directly through the membrane by diffusion. In fact, that's how it gets to your cells, by diffusion. Okay. Uh, over here, you have facilitated diffusion. These molecules are much larger. They could not possibly pass through the membrane, but here we have a channel that will let them through and they move from high concentration to low concentration. That's why it's still called diffusion. It's facilitated because there's a protein there that forms a channel that lets them but they're still moving by diffusion. Okay. Uh, this is another type of diffusion here. And then you have osmosis. In osmosis, if you remember this one, and this, always, this was always the more difficult of the two, you have an unequal concentration of some dissolved substance on either side of the membrane that can't get through the membrane, and then water will move to the side with a higher concentration to try to dilute that the other side becomes more concentrated. This is why bacteria need some walls to prevent, you know, to limit that to some degree. Uh, it's why it's a problem for fish that live, well, for any aquatic organisms. If you're living in fresh water, you're constantly taking water in and you gotta dump it, you gotta get rid of it. If you live in salt water, you have the opposite problem. You're constantly losing water into the salty environment. And you have to do something about that. Um, so this is an example of osmosis here. You can see that uh, I've got a few, only a few solutes here. Now, uh, this membrane here is semi-permeable. It allows the movement of water, but not the solutes. And so what you'll see is water moving this direction, making the side go up higher, making this a little more dilute than it was. This side becomes a little more concentrated. That's, that's osmosis in a nutshell. So we have this, you, remember, you probably remember this from anatomy. We have isotonic, hypertonic, and hypotonic solutions. Isotonic means that the concentration of dissolved junk is the same inside and outside the cell. So water is going back and forth through that membrane, but there's no net change, okay? A hypertonic means there is more stuff outside the cell than inside the cell. These uh, cells will tend to lose water into the environment water will come out, okay? And as they lose water, now if I don't have a cell wall, that cell will begin to shrink because it's losing water. Bacteria, the cytoplasm may shrink down some, but the overall cell does not because the cell wall is preventing that. And then lastly is hypotonic, lower concentration out here, and that means that fluid is going into the cell Again, the cell wall protects the bacterium. Up here, lots of fluid into our regular cell, and at some point, this membrane will simply burst from the pressure, which means loss. Okay. These are all passive processes. Now, that doesn't mean no energy involved. I like to emphasize that. No ATPs involved. The organism isn't doing anything. Nothing's moving without energy. Okay. There's gotta be an energy source or nothing's going anywhere. Okay. The energy source here is the random motion of molecules. 
fluid, whether it's air or liquid, molecules are in constant random motion. Molecules in this room, the nitrogens and the oxygens and the carbon monoxides and carbon dioxides that you're exhaling and all that and whatever strange things there might be in here, they're all in constant random motion right now. This is what causes air pressure and what causes temperature. The faster they move, the more energy they have, the higher the temperature. If we take that energy away and slow them down, then the temperature drops. And that's how, so that's the energy source. It's the random movement of the molecules. That's, how, that's why you get motion. There always has to be some energy source. If there's no energy source, nothing's going anywhere. So we have active processes as well. Uh, these are just ATP facilitated. This is moving stuff that isn't going to go where you want it to go all by itself. For instance, if I have a, a fair amount of this substance inside, not much outside, it's not going to come in by diffusion. If I want this one brought into the cell, I have to grab it and pull it through that using energy from ATP. Now, this is and don't worry about Uniport and Uniport couple that. I'm not going to get into that. I don't know if you talked about that in anatomy or not. Uh, it's, it's not something. I just want you to understand active transport. ATP facilitated. So here's another example. Glucose is an example. Glucose is a pretty good sized molecule. It doesn't go through membranes very easily. So we have a channel. We use, uh, we bring it on through. Uh, and as soon as we get it inside, we modify it. That means that I have an increase in concentration of glucose inside, so that I, I can get more glucose in. Okay, then we have the cytosol, cytoplasm, whichever you would prefer to call it. Um, this is the stuff inside the cell. Used to think of this gray gel-like stuff. It's not like that at all. It's highly structured. Uh, it is mostly water, but highly structured. Uh, contains the cell's DNA. It contains ribosomes. It contains dissolved nutrients, dissolved waste products, all kinds of stuff that's dissolved in, in that inside the cell. And then you may have a little include. An inclusion is kind of like a vesicle in a larger cell that contains some substance. Uh, for instance, there are bacteria that concentrate iron inside of them in these little inclusions, or some concentrate sulfur part of their metabolism and they're found in these little inclusions in the cytoplasm. In fact there's a group of bacteria referred to as the magnetobacteria because they have enough iron in them that they will align, they will align to a magnetic field. Alright, then we have another phenomenon unique to bacteria. Unfortunately not very many of them do it and this is the formation of what's called an endospore. Now, Spore, okay, spore is a resistant structure, allows them to survive uh, adverse conditions. Endo means inside, and so this is a spore that is formed inside the cell, okay? Um, when, so when nutrients are limited or the environment is poor, they will form these. They are extremely resistant to heat, radiation, chemicals. Um, this is kind of what happens. They go, and you don't need to memorize all the steps, but you can see that they ultimately put one of their chromosomes in here. They build 
a very resistant structure around it. Eventually, it'll pop out of the cell. Uh, these can last for years. They can be viable. They have taken uh, some out of Egyptian tombs, and some of them were still viable. Okay, long, long time. That mean, and they're also hard to kill, which makes them, if they're pathogens, this makes them a problem. Now, the good news is um, there are only two genera of bacteria that form them. One is uh, Bacillus, which is the group that anthrax belongs to. It's one of the reasons anthrax hangs around so well in the soil, to, and mostly. And then there's the group Clostridium, which contains uh, tetany, Clostridium, that causes tetanus. Uh, we have Clostridium uh, perfringens, which causes gas gangrene. And then we have the other Clostridium that causes food poisoning, or should call it, but generally found in food. Um, and uh, they can be deadly. Okay, so uh, when people do home canning, you really have to follow the directions. Now, a lot of not many people do home canning anymore. Uh, most people have kind of gotten away from doing that. But you had to heat it to a certain temperature for a period of time, already in the sealed jar, to make sure that you killed the spores. Because if you didn't, they would germinate. And the organism would grow, Clostridium botulinum, and it itself is not a problem, but it produces a toxin. It's the toxin that gets you. And basically, in tetany and tetanus, their toxin inhibits the ability of uh, muscles to relax, the ability to remove acetylcholine from the the uh, neuromuscular junction. And so muscles will spontaneously go and contract and they contract to their full amount, which is called tetany. Okay, remember that term. And uh, eventually, uh, this used to kill a lot of people back, back in the Middle Ages, because uh, they're soil bacteria. People uh, working out in the, in, the, in the soil, they get an injury, they get soil dirt into it. You can, you can pick up these spores. Um, Today, of course, we have medications to help with that. We have uh, antitoxins. You know, the doctor can give you the antitoxin, which will now really reduce the amount of toxin that's in you and you survive. But now, eventually, it would get to the diaphragm, and when you can't breathe anymore, things are pretty much done. Now, uh, botulism does the opposite. It prevents the signal from going across to the muscle and slowly paralyzes muscles. And we get, you will see if you follow, I see it on, uh, uh, on my online news occasionally, but there are occasional instances of botulism poisoning still in the United States every year. And deaths from it. So, so these endospores are really dangerous. And that's why we're fortunate there's only two groups of bacteria that can form them. The rest do not. And uh, therefore they're much less uh, difficult to kill. Okay, some other stuff in there. Ribosomes. Okay, remember those are for protein synthesis. Everybody's got to have ribosomes because everybody's got to make proteins. That's why viruses have to get inside of another cell because they don't have any ribosomes. They can't make proteins. They're going to reproduce. They got to make proteins. They got you know, to do stuff. They can't do it on their own. Uh, you have a cytoskeleton. 
There are three basic types of, three or four types of protein fibers. They're involved in cell division, cell shape, uh, movement of the cell itself. Uh, this is a, uh, in this case, what they've done is dye, stain these with a uh, fluorescent dye that binds to part of the cytoskeleton. And then when you illuminate them with ultraviolet light, you can see it glows. You can see where, where the dye went. Able to see them. And these don't have to be killed to do this. They can still be alive. There are other more um, complex ways of doing this uh, today using different kinds of microscopes. Uh, okay, this is an outer layer. This is the glycocalyx. Remember, we talked about that at the beginning the slime layer around the outside. Flagella, we talked about. Now, here we're into archaeans. Okay, everything up to you now has been bacteria. Archaeans are a little bit different. They do have the glycocalyx, they do have a flagellum, they have the hook arrangement, they have fibrae, they have a unique structure called a hammy. Uh, it is their, I always find the name funny, but it, it, it is there to enable them to attach to surfaces. And this is what it looks like. It looks like a little grappling hook that they use and it just catches and they can then adhere to things. Uh, they do, most have cell walls. They do not use peptidoglycan. They have other very specialized materials. So in that sense, they're not like the other bacteria. Uh, they have cytoplasmic membranes, just like everybody else does. And here's some examples of them. You notice the shapes are not like the shapes of the other bacteria at all. Uh, and they tend to uh, live in relatively extreme environments. Now. Their uh, ribosomes are more like our ribosomes than bacteria. Uh, they have circular DNA. Uh, they use different enzymes to make RNA than bacteria do. Their genetic code is more like eukaryotes than like prokaryotes, and this is why they were put into their own separate group. That was all, and that did that was not that long ago because we had to have the technology to know the biochemistry of them to be able to see, hey, these guys aren't the same. Every advance in technology leads to new discoveries, which changes, changes everything sometimes. So now we've been using this three domain system, well, for at least the last 20 years that I know of, just to give you an idea of how slow things happen. My wife came last night was helping our daughter with her science homework. Their new textbook this year, for the very first time ever, has domains in it. This is in middle school. It's taken over 20 years to get that change into the, into the middle school textbook. It's amazing that it takes that long. Okay, and here's just a little table that compares the two. You can use that as a, as a quick reference. Okay, eukaryotic cells, I'm not going to spend timeline. You already know about eukaryotic cells. We're not going to do much with them. Uh, I do have a little video. I, I won't show it tonight. I probably may have time. Um, and just keep in mind that eukaryotic cells, except for animals, most of them have cell walls. Fungi have cell walls. Plants have cell walls. Many of the proteins have cell walls. Animals, no cell walls. It's a, 
that's uh, a distinct difference. Okay, and so there's a look at the cell wall, and I'm not like I said, I'm not going to go through all of the uh, materials. I just want to go through this one little section here on another type of active transport that they can do, particularly animals, and that's endocytosis. And what we mean here, see how this is using its little false feet here to surround this paramecium, bring it inside and into a vacuole where it will digest it. This takes energy, but it's, it's a, a, an active process for taking things into the cell. Now, it doesn't have to be just food. Uh, you can also take waste product, or excuse me, uh, take in uh, molecules in the outside, bring them in. And of course, if you can bring them in this way, I can take stuff in the cell, and I can push it back out by the same process. Exocytosis, endocytosis. And here's some uh, actual photographs that show this happening. The sequence here, 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 and here. It's taking things into the cell. So we're not just making it up, it really does happen. And here's the reverse. Right. We have flagelli and cilia. This is uh, the flagellum for a eukaryote. Notice no hook embedded in the cell membrane very, very differently. Uh, the jelly work differently. Interestingly, this organism has the flagellum on the front. This is a, 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 a photosynthetic uh, protease, uh, euclidean. That's what you see the little red eye spot. Uh, that's uh, it's not an eye, but what it, it's a light detector. So that if you're doing photosynthesis, it's really handy to be in the light. Okay, so uh, we have cilia, which are very tiny, very short. Usually cells have lots of them. They move very quickly. The most complex single cells that we know of are all ciliates. Uh, they, they're very, very, because you got all these cilia, you've got to coordinate them. Okay? You know, imagine a boat with about 30 people rowing and, and nobody's coordinated. They're all doing different things. Well, you're not going anywhere. you got to coordinate those guys. Okay? got to get everybody together. You know? So if you're in, in uh, doing crew, uh, you got a coxswain who's calling out, stroke, stroke, you know, to keep you all together. That's how that works, okay? Because uh, if you're not together, you're not getting maximum effort. Uh, it's a tough sport. I don't know if any of you have ever probably had, had any contact with that. Uh, you find it, I don't know how many schools in Virginia do it. That's fairly rare, but up in New England, uh, the crew is fairly common. Uh, it's a big race each year at Yale, Harvard. They have both men's and women's teams. And uh, it's a really big, well, anything between Yale and Harvard is a really big deal. Okay. Uh, the annual football game is the game. Nope. You know, they don't care what the season was. If you beat Harvard, Yale's happy. You know, they don't care. You know, the rest of the, the season doesn't. Unfortunately, they haven't beat Harvard quite many times. So. Um, okay. Um, ribosome, cytoskeleton. Here's just another look at cytoskeleton. Different type of, uh, of staining technique. You can see how much cytoskeleton. You can see the nucleus in the middle. You can see the cytoskeleton, uh, pretty obviously. And let's skip those for right now. Nucleus. Uh, I just don't see any point going over all this. Okay. 
and that, that really finishes that particular chapter. Now, um, I have a case study that we're going to work on on Monday. Uh, it, it's, a, it's kind of a made-up one, but it really focuses on the structure of bacteria and give you a chance to practice, see how well you understand it, uh, and you might see it on first exam or something coming up first exam in remedial classes. It's uh, possible. Uh, let me see if I can find something here for you. I've got two things I can look for. Uh, this is, there's more in this than you're going to uh, understand. That's fine. I don't expect you to understand all of it. And I'll stop it in a few places and explain. Um, this uh, is a, um, an animation done at Harvard. Um, and um, it basically uh, is a uh, rendition of what's going on inside cells. Oh, this is the musical one, too. If I can find the other one. If I can't, we'll just use that and stop it here and have it narrate the film. Our red blood cells are carried away at high velocity by a strong blood flow. Leukocytes roll slowly up endothelial cells. E-selectins on endothelial cells interact with ESGL1, a glycoprotein on While red blood cells are carried away at high velocity by a... Okay, so this is the inside of a blood vessel. The little red things are red blood cells zipping on down. You'll notice the white blood cells are not zipping along. They're actually rolling along the, the surface of the, cell, of the uh, blood vessel. From blood flow. Leukocytes roll slowly on endothelial cells. E-selectins on endothelial cells interact with ESGL1. I don't need to know any of these names. All you need to know is these are proteins that are on the endothelial layer of the blood vessel. Okay, you don't remember that from anatomy. And these are proteins that are on the white blood cells, and they're interacting with each other and slowing that, its motion down as it moves along. A glycoprotein on leukocyte microvilli. Leukocytes, pushed by the blood flow, adhere and roll up endothelial cells because existing interactions are broken while new ones are formed. These interactions are possible because the extended extracellular domains of both proteins emerge from the extracellular matrix. Okay, so this is this is the endothelial cell, this is the, the white blood cell. See these proteins sticking out of the cell membrane. Those are some of those proteins we talked about, which were cell membrane proteins. Which covers the surface of both cell types.
The outer leaflet of the lipid bilayer is enriched. Okay, now this is the outer part of the cell membrane. Remember we said fluid mosaic. Things move around. Those proteins in it are like icebergs in the water. They actually move around. Okay, we know they move around because if you can take a mouse cell and a human cell and you can treat them chemically so that they will fuse and become a single cell. And if you wait within five minutes, the mouse proteins and the human proteins are all intermixed all over the cell membrane. Very fluid, they can move around. And you can see some of that motion here. Then sphingolipids and phosphatidylcholine. Sphingolipid-rich rafts raised above the rest of the leaflet recruit specific membrane proteins. Rats' rigidity is caused by the tight packing of cholesterol molecules against the straight sphingol. Okay, so in here you see lots of cholesterol molecules. That makes this part of the membrane more rigid. The more cholesterol molecules, the more rigid the membrane. The fewer cholesterol molecules, the more fluid the membrane. Look at hydrocarbon chains. Outside the rats, heaps in unsaturated hydrocarbon chains and lower cholesterol concentration result in increased fluidity. In sites of inflammation, secreted chemokines bound to heparin sulfate Okay, now cytokines we'll get into a lot more later in the semester. Cytokines are messenger, chemical messengers of the immune system. They are secreted by uh, T cells, B cells, and macrophages, and they are signaling molecules of the immune system. Cells don't just exist on their own. There's a constant signaling process going on between cells, chemical signaling. So this has been released from an area where there's inflammation, where there's been uh, tissue damage. Like now here we're looking at the membrane from the underside, and this is part of the cytoskeleton. These are some of the proteins hanging out of that. The bilayer is a very different composition than that of the outer. While some proteins traverse the membrane. Others are either anchored into the inner leaflet by covalently attached fatty acid chains or are recruited through non covalent interactions with membrane proteins. The membrane bound protein complexes are critical for the transmission of signals across the plasma membrane. Beneath the lipid bilayer, spectrum tetramers arranged into a hexagonal membrane are anchored by membrane proteins. This is part of the cytoskeleton. This network forms the membrane skeleton that contributes to membrane's development and membrane protein distribution. The cytoskeleton is comprised of networks of filamentous proteins that are responsible for the spatial organization of cytosolic components. Inside microfilament, actin filaments form tight parallel. Okay, remember actin? Where else do you find actin? Muscles, right? That's contractile protein in muscles. Okay. Uh, it also is in all cells as a part of a network of fibers. It's pretty, pretty organized in there. It's not just a bunch of water or gel moving around. It's actually quite complicated. Bundles, which are stabilized by cross-linking proteins. While vapor in the cytosol, the network adopts a gel-like structure, stabilized by a variety of active binding proteins. Filaments capture their minus ends by a protein complex so these are small units that self-assemble into these actin filaments. They can also be triggered to disassemble. 
So cells can make them longer, they can make them shorter, they can they can change them. The active network is a very dynamic structure with continuous directional polymerization and disassembly. Severing proteins can use cleats in the filament. Okay, so severing protein, it cuts the filament and then it begins to disassemble. Into the formation of short fragments that rapidly depolymerize or give rise to new filaments. The cytoskeleton includes a network of and these can self-assemble and, and disassemble just like the active can. So the curved conformation of protofilaments from other microtubules, causing their rapid plus and polymerization. Okay, remember we talked about, you would have talked about uh, vesicles being moving materials from the endoplasmic reticulum to the Golgi apparatus, and you'd think, well, how do they go? They just wander around until they get the right place? Now, there actually are, if you want to look at it this way, like roads, and there are specific proteins that attach to these and pull them along here to, until they get to the right spot. They're not just randomly moving around in there, they're actually being pulled. But now that's of course using ATP. This is going on all the time. It's why part of why you need so much ATP. Inbound vesicles travel to and from the plasma membrane. The directional movement of these particle vesicles is due to a family of motor proteins linking vesicles to microtubules. Membrane-bound organelles and mitochondria are loosely trapped by the cytoskeleton. The Protein synthesis transcribed from DNA onto messenger RNA. Messenger RNA and the eukaryotic cell comes out of the nucleus to the ribosome, and that's where we build proteins. Okay. And proteins into the cytosome. Ribosome is attaching the rest of it. Here, free ribosomes translate Building the protein based on the information. Some of these proteins will reside in the cytosome. Others will associate with specialized cytosolic proteins and be imported into mitochondria or other organelles. The synthesis of cell secreted and integral membrane proteins is initiated by three ribosomes. Now, this is the endoplasmic reticulum. Remember, you had rough and smooth. This is an uh, endoplasmic reticulum, and this is a pore, okay? Ribosome is going to sit right down on this, and as the protein is made, it will go through that, be formed into a vesicle inside the uh, endoplasmic reticulum. Which then got the protein translocators at the surface of the endoplasmic reticulum. Basic proteins pass through an aqueous pore in the translocator. Cell secreted proteins accumulate in the lumen of the endoplasmic reticulum. 
Somewhat of an idea of how complex the inside of a cell is. Okay, most of us just think it's this bag of water, and it's really a whole lot more than that. And that's what this is valuable for, just for you to see that. Okay, um, I guess we're, we're we're done, and I'll see you up in the lab in a few minutes.